Well, you can pray for me. I do not have much of a voice today. There are two reasons for that. Number one, I, I went to a game yesterday. And I, 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 yeah, I told myself, reserve your voice. It didn't help that ASU beat the number one team in the country. Now you can clap. I did not rush the field, however, I was one who yelled my fool head off. Um, and, and then second, I got here this morning uh, for worship, and I said, Scott, you already don't have a voice, so you have to reserve yourself in worship. And then we have a wonderful worship team and this wonderful body of Christ, and I'm just like singing my full head off. I can't, I can't help it. So you can pray that I can get through this this morning. Several, several years ago, Tana's sister-in-law, Liz worked in the Situation Room at the White House. She was a military intelligence officer in the United States Army, and a couple members of each branch of the military are assigned that specific duty for a full year. It's it's really quite an honor. Um, In the basement of the West Wing, the Situation Room monitors national and world events, all communications uh, with the White House, as well as the the up-to-the-second whereabouts of the POTUS, the President of the United States. Well, Liz arranged a private tour of the White House for us. Uh, it was great. We got to vi- we got you'll see it. We got to visit um, places not seen on the public tour to include the Oval Office. We were not allowed to go in because there was like the six foot six Secret Service guy standing right at the door. But I could look in uh, the room and see where presidents and world leaders meet. I could see that famous resolute um, desk. Uh, Being a a student of history, it was really quite exciting for me. Uh, We even got to visit the Situation Room itself. You have to enter um, through a secure door, which first leads to a conference room, the, the very conference room where the National Security Council meets. You then pass through that conference room into the, into the situation room, the, the brains of the operation. Well, when we visited, uh, the National Security Council was actually going to meet the next day, and so things had already been set up in this conference room for the meeting. Well, actually, the, the nameplates had been arranged on the large conference table. So we had to wait behind that secure door while Liz called in, let them know that we were there. She then had to go in under instruction. She had to go in first and turn down the nameplates so we would not know where people sat. And she had to, I'm not making this up, she had to remove the nameplate of the POTUS. So when we walked in, there was this large conference table with turned down nameplates and one missing at the end of the table, underneath this large presidential seal. I confess it took us a few minutes, but we were actually able to determine where the POTUS sat. And we sat in his chair and took pictures. I would show you the pictures, but then you would know where he sits, and that would not end well for you. Well, later that same year, we received an official-looking letter in the mail. It had that same presidential seal. It was a Christmas card from the POTUS. 
No, I, I didn't vote for the guy. Y- yes, everybody who visited the White House that year got the same Christmas card. No, he probably never saw the card since the signature was computer generated. But we got a Christmas card with the president of, uh, from the president of the United States with the official seal. It might be my imagination, but I am fairly confident that our mail lady has since treated us with a little more respect. <laughs> well, this morning, we're going to continue studying a piece of mail that, that we've received, a, a letter that actually talks about a pretty special seal. As most of you know, we've been looking at Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians uh, for a few weeks now. And after his normal greeting, he launched into a rather long eulogy about God, a, a praise to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and for His work on our behalf. You, you remember that the outline of this 202-word sentence. We, we looked at the past um, work of the Father, the present and ongoing work of the Son, and then this morning, the present and future work of the Spirit. I also suggested that you could outline it this way, the selection of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the seal of the Spirit, which is that special seal we're going to talk about today. You see, having stated the Father's plan, the Son's provision for the plan, Paul now describes the Spirit's work to make the plan a reality in the lives of believers. So let's begin by reading the whole sentence again. I, I, I told you we were going to do this. Read the whole thing two weeks ago, last week. We're going to do it again. And I want to remind you this is one of the best sentences on the planet because it talks about God's gifts toward us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention Uh, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory." Not done. In Him you also, after listening uh, to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Let me give you the outline of those last two verses of this long eulogy that we're getting ready to jump into. We're going to look, we're going to start by looking at our part, which is simply belief. And then we're going to look at 
uh, the sealing of the Spirit and the pledge of the Spirit. Then we're going to finish this whole thing off with our part, which is praise. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Father's work in eternity past. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be predestined, um, I mean, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. This resulted in the praise of the glory of His grace, that grace that He freely bestowed on us in His beloved Son. Then we looked at God's gifts to us through His Son, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to this extravagant grace. He made known to us the mystery of His will, that all things in the heavens and all things on earth are eventually going to be summed up in, that is, find their completion and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We saw that through the work of His Son, God has made us His special inheritance, leading to the praise of His glory. Now, last week, we, we briefly noticed that, that Paul referred to, quote, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Lots of discussion uh, about that, but most likely we refers to Paul and his fellow Jews who were the first to hear and believe the gospel. But then as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul took the gospel around the world to include Ephesus. And so he says in verse 13, uh, in him, and there's that phrase, that recurring phrase we've seen over and over, in um, Jesus, you also, people of Ephesus, you Gentiles, people of Alliance, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, and we need to stop right there. Because Paul keeps on piling um, words upon words. Look at it. The Jews were the first to hope in Jesus chronologically. We know this. The gospel started in Jerusalem, spread out from there to all of Judea, which is where Jerusalem um, is, and then Samaria right to the north, and then uh, uh, north of that into Galilee, and it has since been making its way to the ends of the world. Why? Because in order for all of these gifts to be, uh, of God to be distributed, uh, redemption and, and forgiveness, the gospel, listen, it must be preached, it must be heard, and it must be believed. Paul said it this way back in our study of the book of Romans, chapter 10, for there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Abounding in riches, that extravagant grace, for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, well, how then will they call on Him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Recurring themes. Jesus is Lord of everybody, Jews and Gentiles. And everybody who calls on Him, He... He grants to them the same riches of grace. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But in order to be saved, you must hear and believe the gospel. So, in Jesus, having listened to, having heard the message of truth. Now, stop right there. It's an interesting way to say it. The message or more literally, the word of truth. The gospel is ref referred to as the word of God or the 
word of truth in a number of places. Uh, we see the same idea in Colossians chapter 1. Paul speaks of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. He is telling us that the gospel is the word of truth, which implies that there are words or messages of untruth. There are words of falsehood. You see, truth is the opposite of that which is false, that which is a lie. You see, in Ephesus, like every metropolitan city of that day and ours, there was a hotbed of religious pluralism. There were all kinds of religions in Ephesus, to include, for example, the worship of Diana. This is going to be a recurring theme in the book of um, Ephesians, so we'll talk about it later, but notice by these words, Paul is implying that their worship of other deities was not the word of truth. You see that? They were following the word of of falsehood, the word of lies, because you see that the message of truth um, is to be found in the gospel. And I want to suggest to you that it is only, that it, there's only one message of truth. As you probably know, um, been coming to this church any period of time, this is a hot topic uh, in our culture today. And it's a hot topic in churches today, incredibly. You, you, only, you can hardly get by a week in our country today without some news outlet like Fox or, or CNN um, running some a feature lifestyle story about religion, about faith. Whether it, and this was the feature story this morning, front page CNN, this morning. Mitt Romney's faith. Or it might be the one that I read last week, where the story was, uh, they, they were interviewing some Muslim Americans who were pointing out that, hey, Just because we're Muslims, we're also American citizens. That's true. No one is questioning their American citizenship. It is their citizenship in heaven that is at issue. Because you see, there is only one message of truth. There's only one. You say, I don't like, you're going to do this again. I don't like when you do this, Scott. It sounds so exclusive. It sounds so intolerant. Well, that's what the Bible um, says about Christianity. It is the only message of truth. So I'd ask you, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to proclaim Christ as one good option among many? Do you want me to preach Christ as the best of a number of options. Hey, believe whatever you want, but Jesus works pretty well for me. That is not true because you can't believe whatever you want. There is only one message of truth. You see, in Ephesus, their belief in false religions was not enough. I mean, if they could make it by their worship of Diana, why did Paul go there? 
because they needed the message of truth, that which is utterly reliable and trustworthy as opposed to that which is false. Paul declared over and over, in fact, the Bible declares that Christianity is exclusively, that means only, true. It is, by the way, why we have missionaries today, because sincere faith in any other God is not true, nor is it enough. There's only one message of truth. There is only, we just sang it, there is only one true God. What is the message of truth? Paul tells us it is the gospel, that word simply means it is the good news of uh, of your salvation. Salvation speaks of deliverance, it speaks of rescue, specifically deliverance from bondage to sin, deliverance from the consequent judgment to come. I want to to say unabashedly, if you don't have this message of truth, you are still in bondage, and judgment still awaits. It's gospel. Of the 76 times that the word gospel appears in the New Testament, Paul uses it 60 times, 60 of 76 times because Paul loved the gospel. So do I. We see very clearly here and in Romans, the gospel must be preached and to be heard, and it must be heard. The good news is news that is to be heard. That means it's to be vocalized. It is to be verbalized. I've said it over and over. Let me say it again. No one is going to become a Christian because you act like a Christian. You understand this? This is a message that must, it's the message of truth. It's the message that must be heard. No one of those 800 meals are going to convert anyone, but they pave the way for the message to be heard. They must hear the message of truth about Jesus. But but, but now listen, even hearing the message, a, a proclamation of the gospel is not enough. A proclamation of the gospel does not make the hearers Christians. I wish it did. doesn't. They must also believe the message, critically important. You see, this is our responsibility. The responsibility of humanity, the responsibility of people is to hear and believe the message. All through this eulogy, we've been praising God for what He does. Here we see what we do. We must believe the message of the gospel, the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ which will bring then redemption through His blood. Right now you're going, well, now I'm a bit confused. I thought you've been saying for the past two weeks that people are chosen and predestined for salvation. That's right. Well, but now you're saying that people must believe in order to be saved. That's right. Well, so which one is it? It's yes. God, you see, has ordained the ends, that His chosen and predestined people will be saved, but He has also ordained the means by which they will be saved, and that is through their belief or their faith in Jesus and what He has done for them. It's the only way. John Stott says it this way. Let no one say, therefore, that the doctrine of election by the sovereign will and mercy of God is mysterious as it is, 
makes either evangelism or faith unnecessary. Listen to that. The doctor, I get so tired of people saying to me, so you believe in predestination? Well, yeah, it's in the Bible. Well, so, so then well, why evangelize? Because it's in the Bible. That's why. He goes on to say, is, is, is evangelism and faith unnecessary? The opposite is the case. It is only because of God's gracious will to save that evangelism has any hope of success and faith becomes possible. The preaching of the gospel is the very means that God has appointed by which He delivers from blindness and bondage those whom He chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. He sets them free to believe in Jesus and causes His will to be done. Proclamation of the gospel is necessary. Hearing is necessary. Belief is necessary. Believe the gospel. I said it last week. Let me say it again. I'm going to keep on saying it. Choosing and predestination are the Father's responsibilities. Choosing and predestination are the Father's responsibilities. Jesus made our salvation, redemption, and forgiveness possible through the work of His cross. That was His responsibility. And hoping and believing in the gospel is our responsibility, at which time you are sealed by the Spirit, which is His responsibility. You see, everybody has a responsibility in this thing. You say, but what if I'm not chosen? Not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to believe, but what if I want to believe and I'm not chosen? Not your worry, because that's not possible. Our responsibility is to believe the gospel. Listen to me. Our responsibility is to believe the gospel and to preach it to everyone who will listen until they get tired of us. And ours is to believe the truth of Scripture. Listen to me. Ours is to believe the truth of Scripture, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that? I do. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And believe that no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. That's what Jesus said. Do you believe it? I do. And believe that all that the Father has given to the Son will come to him. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus said. I believe it. And believe that anyone who comes to Jesus, he will never cast out. He will never turn away. Do you believe that? I do. Jesus said it. So, I would say to you, my friends, believe the gospel and you will be saved. Believe the gospel and you will be saved. That's your job. Not only that, point two, when you believe, you will be sealed in Him. That is, you will be sealed in Jesus with the Holy Spirit of promise. Having listened and having believed, Paul says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He's called the Spirit of promise because He was promised in the Old Testament in places like Ezekiel 36 where God talked about the new covenant to come, which is already here. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, God says, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put, notice, I'm going to put my spirit within you. He was promised by Jesus in the farewell discourse, the night before the cross. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he will be with you forever. Who's this helper? Oh, here it is, the spirit of truth whom this world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. Later, after the the resurrection and um, at the ascension, we read these words in Acts chapter 1. 
um, gathering them together. Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait, uh, but, uh, to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He is the Spirit of promise, promised in the Old Testament, promised by the Father, promised by Jesus. And upon coming, God seals the believer through the Spirit, meaning there's a sense in which the Spirit becomes this special seal. You see, if you look at this closely, you see that God does the sealing, sealing the believer in Christ by the Spirit. Now, when Paul was writing, you sealed lots of stuff. You sealed letters and, and property and animals and well, even slaves. I mean, the seal could be done with hot wax and a, and a, and a ring or a carving made that made an impression on the wax. It could be that the seal itself was just impressed or, uh, on the property or branded into the animal or the slave. The, the seal spoke. Now, I want you to get this. This is very important. The seal spoke of four very important things. Ownership, identity, authenticity, and security. And all four of those are involved uh, in the sealing of the believer by the Spirit. Look at it. First, ownership. We are owned by God. We have been bought with a price, purchased out of the slave market at a very high price, the blood of His Son. And now listen, and so He has branded us. See, I don't like tattoos. Well, you got one. You've been, you've been branded. Secondly, there is authenticity. A seal proves and verifies the contents. For, for example, when I got the Christmas card from the president, it carried his seal. It made it official. We, um, sealed by the Spirit, have been authenticated. We have been proven genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Only that third... A seal demonstrates identity. We are true believers. We bear the identity and image of Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of the living God because uh, bearing the imprint and likeness of His Son. And then there's fourth. There is security. Or I could say protection. Security. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit with an inviolable, unbreakable bond. In fact, later in this book, Paul's going to say that we are sealed until when? Until the day of redemption. That is, until the day that Jesus comes back. You see, I believe this and other passages teach us that we are secure in Christ in our salvation. Think about this whole eulogy with me. If God chose and predestined us from before the foundation of the world, If we were redeemed by Christ's own blood, if our past, present, and future sins have been forgiven, if, as another passage says, Jesus will lose none that the Father has given him. Back to this passage, if we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, you have the whole Trinity involved in our security, how can we possibly lose our salvation? You see, this is why His choosing becomes so important. You see, if you choose, then you can 
opt out. But if he chose, you know, before the foundation of the world, it's his choice, and you are eternally his. Notice, all of this happens at the moment of salvation. When you believed, you were sealed. Lots of things happen by the Holy Spirit um, in our lives. For example, we speak of being baptized in or by the Holy Spirit. We speak of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here, of being sealed with the Spirit. And we speak of being filled with the Spirit. All of those happen at the moment of salvation. Now, I know there are some people out there that teach that some of these happen later, but the biblical evidence is that all four of these happen at salvation. Now, three of them happen only once at salvation with ongoing, I want to add, permanent effect. Baptism of the Spirit, whereby you are placed into the body of Christ. That's with the baptism of the Spirit. You are placed into the body of Christ. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, for by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. And by the way, throw this in, no extra charge, nowhere are we told, nowhere are we told to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere are we told to seek the indwelling or sealing for that matter. That's just something God does. Secondly, the Spirit indwells us. That is, the God of the universe takes up residence within us, such that Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 6, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, if we know Christ, the Spirit dwells in us. And if the Spirit, conversely, does not dwell in us, we don't know Christ. In other words, you can't have a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. Third, there is sealing, already talked about it, whereby your ownership is made secure for all time. All three of those happen at the moment of your salvation. The fourth one The filling of the Spirit, I believe, happens at salvation, but it is an ongoing work of the Spirit. Paul is going to tell us in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to get to that, to keep on being filled with the Spirit. The idea is this daily surrender yourselves to the control of the Spirit. Get filled over and over again as you daily, let's just be real honest sometimes, several times a day, surrender to His control. Now, There are lots of things that the Spirit does as He indwells us. He empowers us. He convicts us. He directs us. He distributes spiritual gifts. He encourages lots of things, lots of things that we receive. But but, but all of those gifts that we receive are only the beginning. I want you to understand that there is much more to come, which leads to our third point, the pledge of the Spirit Uh, In the first part of verse 14, who, that is the Spirit, is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. I'm just going to comment on this briefly. The, the, The word pledge is a very specific word only used by Paul in the New Testament, out outside of the, uh, of the New Testament. It was a word used in commerce, and that word pledge spoke of a, of a down payment or earnest money. That, that became the first installment of other payments to come. This pledge was proof of or a guarantee of more to come. I want you to get that. 
The Holy Spirit, with all of his benefits that you've enjoyed up to this point, and it's been good, um, is given, he is given to us as a guarantee, as a down payment, as a pledge that there is much more to come. If that doesn't get you excited, nothing will. I'm going to say it again. There is much more to come. He's the pledge of our inheritance. Our inheritance could be referring to the much more that we're going to get, uh, but the same word is also used in verse 18 to speak of us, again, being God's inheritance. So I think context more likely is that he is saying that the Spirit is a pledge, a guarantee that we actually belong to God. That takes us back to last week. Uh, It appears that we are God's inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. Think about that with me for a moment. We're sealed which demonstrates ownership. And in that seal, we've received guarantees that we are the genuine inheritance of God. In fact, look at the next phrase because I think it fits. With a view to the redemption or the buying back, we know what this means, of God's own possession. See, we've received the Spirit with a view that God's going to eventually fully redeem His own possession. He has chosen us, he has redeemed us, he has uh, adopted us. First Peter chapter 2, Dean read earlier, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now notice, so that you may dis- declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are God's own possession, chosen by him, a people for his possession, so that, and that brings us Full circle to the last point and conclusion, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness. Our text then ends with those words again, to the praise of His glory. All of this that we've talked about for three weeks is to the praise of His glory. Paul started this eulogy with the words, blessed or praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he talks about the, uh, the Father and ends with, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Then he talks about His Son and ends with, to the praise of His glory. Then he talks about the Son and he ends with, to the praise of His glory. Do you think he's trying to get a point across? This is, that is what this is all about. To the end that all things will be summed up in Christ to the praise of of His glory. Started this book, I will continue this book by reminding you and me, it is not about us. It is all about Him. Someone gave me a book this week that I had actually seen years ago, and it summarizes well the challenge uh, that we as, as proud people face. We're proud people. And in our self-centered humanity. We think everything is about us, right? It's all about, about me. I'll give you an illustration. We drive down the street. We think everybody is looking at me. I know I drive a Subaru. They're still looking at me. In the first chapter of this book, the author illustrates our problem with this anecdote. A dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. A a cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. (laughs) 
The author is not. I am not suggesting we're mere dogs. But I wonder how much of the time we run around thinking, wow, wow, God has done all of this for me. This must be about me. And God sits in heaven shaking his head saying, yes, I I love you. Yes, I care for you. Yes, I provide for you. But in the end, it is not about you. Paul says God has done all of these things so that, so that we will make much of Him to the praise of His glory as all things are summed up in Christ. And so, let's stand in response in His presence and and pray and sing a rather appropriate song reminding Him and us it's about Him. Go ahead and stand to your feet. Father, we thank you um, for this great eulogy that makes much of you. Would you help us to do the same, to make much of you and to fade into the background and recognize and acknowledge that you are God. There is no other. And we love you. In Christ's name, amen.